Hello, I'm Renee Vaughan Sutherland, and welcome to Greater Than 11%, a podcast born out of the shock and surprise that according to a report published earlier this year, that only 11% of women currently hold the title of creative director within the media industry. As an artist and creative director myself, I'm not oblivious to the inequality, which, let's face it, is rife in most industries, and spurred on by the 2018 Create Your Futures event, which challenged those attending what they would do to address the imbalance, the concept for greater than 11% was born. The ultimate aim is to contribute to significantly increasing that very small percentage. Having reflected for some time over the potential reasons as to why, across the board, there is such a disproportionate number of women to men in creative roles, I arrived at the fact there is a lot of careers that I have absolutely no idea what they are or actually what skills they require. So the possibility to inhabit or aspire to have those roles can never eventuate. I should also say here, there is of course many other factors that contribute to inequality, misogyny being quite a significant one. As I'm super interested in how others shape their creativity, I'll be chatting to a range of women over the series, exploring their careers and their creative lives, in the aim to expand the knowledge of the vast number of options available for pursuing a creative career, in addition to shedding some light on what others do. Today I'm joined by cinematographer Annabelle Dals-Hanks, who has shot a number of British films such as Myland and the recently completed Hope Gap, which is currently in post-production. She's been the lead director of photography on numerous dramas for the BBC, Channel 4 and Sky. She was the first cinematographer to be named by BAFTA as a breakthrough Brit. Not only does she have many accolades to her talents and her name, she's extremely hardworking, incredibly creative and a generous individual. The first time Anna and I came face to face was in bed, which the reason may or may not be revealed later on in our discussion. I've been extremely humbled on three occasions where Anna has worked with me in my own productions. This has involved filming in the wilds of Essex, cheese cellars in Switzerland, and capturing recreations of scenes from Pretty Woman at the BFI. Her calm, observant, open nature makes her an absolute dreamboat to collaborate with, as she opens up worlds of possibilities to thoughts and ideas. Anna, I could go on, but this could get overly gushy. So it's with great joy that I welcome you to the Greater Than 11%. Thank you. That's a very lovely and glowing introduction. All true. So, I don't think we've ever discussed this, and actually I'm not sure I've ever verbalised this, but one of the first times we ever collaborated together, I remember watching you work and being in complete awe. And it kind of dawned on me at that moment that I'd never considered it a possibility that I could be a DOP, Director of Photography. Something in that instance I realised I probably would have liked to do, which on reflection is odd, as I was obsessive about photography as a teenager, always had some form of lo-fi video camera, and in my own art practice I shoot on both film and video, and I'm around cameras all the time in my capacity as a creative director. But it really never entered my mind that I could be a lead cinematographer, which reinforces the purpose of this podcast. So I'm interested to know how did you arrive at wanting to be a cinematographer and how you went about achieving it? I had a very convoluted journey to, to getting into the camera department and getting into the whole idea of film and television um, through medical school, through what, then leaving medical school, dropping out, and, um, and wanting to make documentaries but not knowing anything about how to do that. So I uh, took a 60mm film making course at like a local college in London where I was sort of radicalised by these kind of art house um, teachers 
who showed me loads of films from the 70s and just got me really interested in cinema. And I became fascinated by the camera. And then the BBC were filming something in the college. I just went along and started doing work experience. I didn't really know quite at that point still that I wanted to go into cinematography, but I'd sort of forgotten all about the fact I wanted to make documentaries, I think, by this point. Um, and um, I think it was the second work experience job I had. I met somebody who said, who just said, well, you could do this. And, and it was like a revelationary moment because I'd never really thought about it as a you know, paid career working in the camera department but I was sort of drawn to the camera like you're drawn to a fire you know it was there was just something about it the sort of magnetism of it that sort of pulled me to it and I quite early on in my career met a cameraman that I've talked to you about before David Odd who's who's had a massive impact on my career and he he sort of took me on and sort of seemed to see something in me that made me want to prove that he wasn't wrong <laughs> so um he always talked about you know he wanted everyone that worked with him to want to have his job. That was what he would always say to everyone. So there was, so I think it was that moment. It was that kind of realization of people saying, "Oh, you could do this," and you thinking, "I could do this." And then watching him work and being inspired by his kind of very generous and open creative process made me want to engage in that. So really, probably, obviously, you've got loads of talent and skill, and he saw that in you. But kind of without him, kind of mentoring you and shaping you leading yeah. it towards that kind of end ambition as a cinematographer. Mm. It's probably a lot to do with, with his th- kind of involvement. Of, yeah, I think it's a lot to do with him and a couple of other people along the way. I think, you know, I think it's just sometimes it's as simple as, you know, just a few people believing in you and, and then you, that kind of sparks something off in you and you kind of want to see, you want to test that out and you want to try it. And it's exciting as well, like when you first start working in film television. So... Maybe you can talk about what that kind of, all the kind of roles, just kind of a dotted history Mm -hmm. that Um, leads up to getting to a cinematographer. So, sadly, to get your foot in the door these days, you you probably do have to do work experience. So you have to do unpaid work experience, which is, you know, not a great great system because obviously it excludes people that can't afford to not work or not get paid work. Um, But doing the work experience means that you then kind of have just enough know-how to then get on the first rung of the ladder, which is a camera trainee. So the camera trainee is kind of, you know, the lowest paid job. And the role of a camera trainee is basically supporting the rest of the team. So you would make sure they've got teas and coffees and water, you're charged with batteries. And if you're working with a good team, they'll teach you things. So they'll, they'll gradually teach you bit by bit um, about how to be a clapper loader, which is the next rung. Mm-hmm. So then the clapper loader, also called second assistant, uh, second assistant camera now, more commonly, would put the clapper board on, maintain all the notes um, relating to the slates and the takes. But they'd also look after all of the kind of backstage stuff, so all the equipment and liaising with production and keeping the focus pillar happy. So everyone's job is to keep the person above them happy. Mm-hmm. Um, so the focus pillar is also called the first assistant camera and and they would uh, focus they would focus the camera with usually like a remote handset mm-hmm. which is wirelessly wirelessly connected to the focus because obviously in still in stills photography you you focus the camera for you know that particular frame but in movie in the moving image the subject will move continually around you need to keep them continually in focus which is really difficult mm-hmm. so the focus builder's job is to work out how to do that through a number of different problem solving techniques that they'll have mm-hmm. maybe three or four different approaches you know that they'll employ per shot so it's a hard job um, and they're also responsible for the camera itself which means all the accessories that you put on it 
um, you know, the way it's running, everything to do with that, which is itself a big job. So that's the sort of, that's the system behind the camera department. And then the next rung up from that might be camera operator, but some people don't go through that role or some people do that role a bit alongside being a focus pillar. It used to be a role that you would do for 10 years and then you'd be a DOP. Mm-hmm. Um, but now it's, it's a lot less common. So yeah, the next role after that would be director of photography. Is there a difference between director of photography and a cinematographer? I think director of photography came more from America and it was a title that was kind of, that the unions wanted as a form of recognition of the value of that role. Mm-hmm. And cinematographer is more of a European term, that's my understanding of it. But director of photography seems to be more commonly used by agents, seems like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, it kind of drives that forward as a title. Okay. And the other thing that you talked about was a clapper or a clapper loader. Mm-hmm. So if you're not in the industry, that probably means mm-hmm. <laughs> nothing. So what, what is that role? Okay, a clapper board. Most people probably would have seen it, you know, it's like, it used to be chalk and have a, like a stick at the top that you mm-hmm. clap mm-hmm. when, you know, just before you go for a take. Mm-hmm. You'd read out the numbers on it, which would be the slate and the take. So if it's your first shot of the whole film, mm-hmm. it would be slate one. Mm-hmm. And if it's your first take, it would be take one. So it would be one take one and then you clap. Yeah. And the clap is to synchronise the picture with the sound because they're recorded separately. So it means that in post-production, you can then join them back up together and then you'll have them in sync with each other. So in terms of being a DOP, what is a typical day? Is there a typical day? The typical day of a DOP would depend on whether you're in prep or production or post-production, but say we're, say we're on the shoot. So a typical day would be you'd, you'd probably get up at like six in the morning or something. Um, you'd arrive on set for breakfast at seven. You'd eat your breakfast. You'd start immediately talking to people and you know thinking about what you're doing that day. You'd probably go down to set with the director at half past seven, um, spend half an hour walking around the set and discussing what you're going to do. Um, and then you start work at eight and you work until maybe seven in the evening. And your your job on set is basically deciding the shots in collaboration with the director. And depending on director, you may have more or less set in that. You may be completely in control of deciding shots, or virtually completely in control, or you may be working with a director who's quite precise about what they want. They might have even storyboarded what the shots that they want and then it's your job to enact that and maybe better it and, you know, a scene will be rehearsed in front of you with, by the actors. You'll find a kind of quiet place to hide and just watch that happen and just think, think, think about, you know, where will I put the camera to cover this scene? Where will I put the lights to work with the camera positions? Mm-hmm. Um, and then when they've finished rehearsing, you'll talk to the director um, about what you're going to do. You'll make a plan, then they bring in the crew, everyone watches the rehearsal of the scene, and then you explain the shots that you want to do to the crew. Um, and then you set about lighting the thing and setting up the camera and, and liaising with your three departments, which is the camera department, uh, the lighting department and the grips. So the grips set up, like the tripod or the dolly or, or the crane or whatever you might be using. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe um, we could talk a little bit more about the relationship with the director because the director of photography is actually a very intimate relationship. Like you're working pretty much hand in hand. Like mm. you said, you're either really coming up with a lot of the creativity and offering solutions or you know potential kind of shots mm. or you're kind of just creating those shots based on these storyboards or their verbal kind of direction. So how does that relationship facilitate the creativity? And I'm sure it's different with different directors. Mm, Yeah, it's completely different on every single job. Um, (laughs) But over time I've realised that some approaches that work much, much better than others and I tried to sort of steer 
the relationship through that approach. So the best thing for me is if during prep, the best thing is if you have a nice long prep um, and that the prep's well organised so that you have like enough time with the director to sit down and just hang out and just watch films together. Mm-hmm. Because if you, you can work with the director by reading a script and talking, but verbalising ideas often leads, in my experience, to an outcome where you, you may think that you're talking about the same thing, but you might not quite be talking about the same thing. Whereas if you watch films together, it's really interesting to gauge another person's reaction. Mm. They just think they hate something that you thought that they would have liked because it's almost like something you thought they'd describe. Or, you know, they love, they love something. And then, you, you know, the more you can get in their head and the more that you can understand where they're coming from, then the better it's going to be. And, and you can then also look at the script and like refine the idea, like what you want, what you're aiming for is to have a really clear picture of exactly what your, what this film is before you start to make it. Mm-hmm. And in that like perfect harmonious collaboration, that means that when you get on set, ev- almost every idea you suggest is like, is the right idea. And yeah. every idea they suggest, you understand what they mean and you're just, you're both like going in the same direction. And that that's like the kind of perfect collaboration. And, and also under those circumstances, you feel very free to speak your mind. The good thing for me is I worked for a long time as an assistant. So I've kind of seen these relationships play out again and again and again, just observing them. Mm-hmm. And then you have to spend like the next week kind of backpedaling and working out, okay, they okay, they like to start seeing panning off an extra, right? I didn't know this. I don't really like it myself if I'm completely honest, but you know, I've got to do it because, you know, there's no point in fighting the director. You have to you have to kind of be on their side. And that, that's one thing that this cameraman, David Odd, taught me. He said, mm-hmm. I see myself as the right-hand man of, of the director. I definitely observed that, especially when we've worked together. And it's funny because I really was thinking about, you know, you before we, uh, we kind of recorded this. And I definitely, you are so observant. And that's what I really love working about with you. So you kind of just hang back and you really absorb everything that's going on and then offer something out. It's not just like, oh, we could do this, we could do that, we could mm-hmm. do that. And so, yeah. Uh, So, Anna, what skills and qualities do you need to be an exceptional cinematographer? To be an exceptional cinematographer, you have to have a good relationship with creativity, and that's the most important thing. I think there's a big misconception, which is that it's about your technical knowledge and your technical understanding, and it's not about that, and that's just a tiny part of the job. Um, And I think I could teach, like, the basic principles of cinematography to anyone in about a week um, and then it would take them some time to put them into practice and most importantly it's about the experience of putting them into practice but that's that's one part of the job and it's like down on like low down on the list of what's important what's really important is feeling kind of creatively free and uninhibited and your approach to people your approach to ideas you know you you want to be coming up with ideas you want to be um, open in yourself and, and feel that you can open yourself to other people. I think one of like the two routes to becoming a cinematographer um, are either you work your way up through the camera department, which I did, or you go to film school, or some people do a combination of both. They might go partway through the camera department, then go to film school. But in a sense, both of those routes can inhibit your creativity because um, working in the camera department is, is kind of like it's a bit like being in the army, like the whole film industry is quite militaristic. As a camera trainee or even a loader, you're not allowed to touch the camera sometimes, Mm -hmm. particularly a camera trainee, but sometimes often a loader too, Mm -hmm. can't touch the camera. 
um, you can do this, you can't do that, you can't run on set, you must, uh, you know, there's a whole load of rules. So some of those rules, a lot of those rules pertain to the cinematography as well. So flares are bad. You know, every time we think there might be a risk of a flare, mm-hmm. we try and get rid of it. So in a sense, like, all of, all of these things make you think there's a right way and a wrong way to do things. So then when you come to create, if you if you go in thinking there's a right way and a wrong way to do something, you're not going to be creatively free. So you then have to kind of radicalise yourself out of that way of thinking. Yeah. Um, and film school, likewise, can kind of drive you towards perfe- a perfected image rather than a kind of creative approach. And I think I was quite lucky because of this this cameraman, David Odd, who, who mentored me, that he was a very um, kind of free and radical personality that liked to operate in a completely different way. Mm-hmm. I heard someone talk about ideas once and they said it was like, ideas are like little frightened animals. And if you if you coax one out of the woods, the rest will follow and you just have to keep trusting the little furry animals. That's a great <laughs> <analogy>. <laughs> You can keep coaxing them and just don't scare them off. Like, yeah. don't, scare, don't scare off your ideas. Mm-hmm. And how do you approach that then in terms of coaxing your ideas out of the woods? I I kind of, I try to just, well, there's lots of different things really. Like I look at the script, I think if you spend time with a script on its own without introducing too many other parameters and you just, and you just keep creating with it. So you just think, well, here there could be this, that and the other and you know, maybe here, you know, mm. you just try and throw up as many ideas as you can mm. and then you'll go on recce's and you'll meet the director and that will probably change all your ideas. But then just keep going back to scripts and keep looking for more, mm-hmm. just keep looking for more. And then the other really important thing is about the influences that you allow in your life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you are effectively, your output is what your input is to a large extent. So if you watch, you know, daytime TV all the time, then your lighting is going to be bright and your frame is going to be a particular way. If you watch 1970s films with crash zooms, you're going to think that's pretty cool and that's what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. So you need to kind of keep your input um, somewhere close to something that radicalises you. Mm-hmm. Having said that, you also have to keep your eye on what's current. So I have to watch a lot of contemporary TV, which mm-hmm. I might not otherwise watch. Mm-hmm. So um, I want to go back to... You talked about earlier about the first thing you did is you went and did a 16 mil course. And so um, you shoot, even now, still on... Uh, celluloid cameras but also digital cameras and I'm wondering if you can talk about the difference between the two the two different mediums and kind of how they the end result is different yeah I think the process is very different and the end result is very different so with film I mean film really only switched over to digital professionally like less than 10 years ago so my whole kind of assisting career began on film and then it just switched almost overnight I noticed a big process difference when there was a switch from film to digital mm-hmm. which was that there was a lot there was a lot of discipline on a set shot on film and you would have fewer takes and the actors would know that you know that the camera was rolling this was it this one they turned it on gave everything and that's because of the cost of film that's because of the cost of yeah it's because of the cost of film you know you wouldn't they just wouldn't expect tons of takes and they wouldn't expect a take to keep running mm-hmm. whereas with digital every set is different but there is we probably do do more takes we shoot the rehearsal Mm-hmm. often which brings a kind of it does bring a lack of discipline into the process because that kind of point between you know being rehearsing and playing and just being completely switched on is sometimes lost so there's the rehearsal sort of bleeds into the takes which mm-hmm. sort of then come to an end um so I think that there's a difference in process and in terms of my work as a DAP like 
I went to Cameron Marge, which is um, like a festival for cinematographers. I found it quite funny, but those cinematographers were all complaining about the switchover because they said, we used to be magicians, you know. <laughs> People used to respect us. No one, you know, it was like a magic. No one knew what we were doing. And, yeah. um, and this obviously, like, bolstered their ego somewhat. But now, you know, everyone can see the image you're creating um, straight away. So I think... It sort of amuses me this this idea of like it's lost it's lost ego and yeah. it's probably a good thing to my mind. Yeah. But a little bit of that magic has gone because you know you are seeing exactly what you're getting, um, and the end result is that you know the digital image is very clean and very crisp. Do you have a preference? Um, sadly, I <laughs> I the thing is that the more you watch digital, the more yeah. you become acclimatised to it. And my I feel, last... <laughs> I feel like I have to kick you out. I know what you're going to yeah, say Yeah, I know, I know. I was like, you're just going to feel you're like a Yeah. <laughs> I, the last job I shot on 16mm, I, I was kind of, I don't know, it was, it was a tough shoot because, like, a lot of the assistants aren't, they don't know how to deal mm. with 16mm anymore. So there were soft shots and there were hairs and, you know, it was, it was kind of... I was disappointed in that way, um... You probably should explain what hairs means because yeah. that does okay, sound quite yeah. rad. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, hairs are little bits of film that that get caught in the gate and they look on the frame, they look like little kind of fingers that are waving, you know, around the edges of the frame. Um, and make the shot basically useless. Yeah, or you if, have to. If then, you're not going for that, that yeah, if you're not, you don't want that. It's <laughs> just quite cute and quaint. Yeah. <laughs> I don't prefer digital, but. What, what I'm disturbed about is that my eyes are becoming more acclimatised to digital. And, and disturbed whereas, is the right word. I yes, I thought, you'd, <laughs> <laughs> I thought you'd say that. <laughs> yeah, I know it is disturbing because, like, I don't know, we have, like, a romantic relationship with film, don't we? Absolutely. Because that's what we've watched, all the films that we love, yeah. which have been shot on film. Yeah. So that's, I think that's part of the love, is, like, seeing something on film makes mm -hmm. you love it because it reminds you of all those amazing experiences you've had in the cinema or mm. at home, watching things shot on film. And there's something tangible to it. I, for me, there's definitely a difference when mm. I look at something cellular, and obviously I work in cellular, but it feels more sculptural. I don't know, mm. and I've often... We've talked about it in the past, but, you know, for me, it's a sculpting kind of medium, whereas digital always feels really flat. It doesn't yeah. feel like the image is burned into something. It feels it's sitting on top of it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, there's like a luminescence with film yeah. where there's, yeah, you feel the depth. Mm -hmm. And it's not even about it being projected. It's, yeah. you know, even if you watch it on a, on a screen, yeah. it still has it. So I wouldn't say I prefer digital, but... <laughs> I feel like I'm bringing you back slowly. <laughs> I wouldn't fight for every job to be on film. Yeah, fair enough. And I think every job on film doesn't even make sense. Like, I definitely no. get that. But yeah. yeah. So I wonder if we could talk about one of your biggest challenges in your career. You know, getting your big break is a big challenge. Mm. Um, and I, I was lucky there. But I think... The biggest challenges in general of working are, you know, dealing with the personal, with the relationships on set and, mm. and you're never quite knowing what you're going to, what you're going to get. So I'd say the, the low point in my career um, was doing two jobs in a row that just happened to be directors that were complete bullies and really kind of nasty, nasty characters. Mm. Um, and it's, and it kind of comes up and bites you because you're not expecting it. So you're not kind of walking in, like, ready to deal with, you know, arseholes. Mm -hmm. um, so, and kind of on the run, you're, you know, you're kind of trying to untangle this thing and think, well, you know, how do I, how do I approach this? Mm -hmm. um, when you shouldn't really even have to be thinking about it. You should just be getting on with the job and, and doing it properly. Mm -hmm. um, and it's always a result of, you know, other people not being able to manage their own emotions and their own stress mm -hmm. and essentially... At some deep level, not 
actually being competent enough to do their job or not believing that they are. Mm-hmm. And they just pick on everyone around them and, you know, they can make the life of an entire crew a misery. Um, so I'd say, yeah, that's dealing with, like, those kind of personalities has been the difficult challenge. Yeah, and I guess as well, because the thing about not kind of working together collaboratively is that actually creativity starts to be sucked out of the room, out mm. of the scene or whatever. But also I think in your capacity as the kind of lead cinematographer, you also, like you said, you've alluded to, you've got your team. So you're, mm. you're the face of that interaction. But when you're going through it, how mm. do you create that distance? Because, you know, we've probably most of us have experienced some form of bullying at, at some point in our careers. Mm. How do you stay, like, in the mindset, like, this is their shit yeah. and I need to do what I need to do because, yeah, and be creative mm. and look after my team, mm. yeah. Yeah, um, I think the best thing is, you know, you have to approach every day, you have to just go in with your head held high every single day and just keep and just keep going and fighting and, and just keep coming up with suggestions and just keep being that, that, that creative person that you've got to be to make this thing work. If people are picking on my team, it's much easier for me to to confront that mm-hmm. you know that's that's my job and i feel you know mm. i'll i'll kind of feel happy about stepping in for that person mm. because that's what you're supposed to do it, when they're kind of picking on you directly mm-hmm. that takes a bit more thought and you you know i think now i would approach those situations differently i would be much more forthright about taking that person aside and saying you know this is not acceptable and we mm. need to talk about this which i did do some of but not Probably not quickly enough. The problem with bullies as well is they go through the same cycle of kind of um, apologising and being really nice and then flipping again. So just when you're about to confront them, they turn really nice and you think, well, OK. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, I don't want to sort of dwell too much on no. these negative experiences because they happen in every workplace and they, you know, yeah. they come and go. And generally, I'd say everyone's been pretty mm-hmm. lovely that I've worked with. Obviously, you've worked with directors, feature films, dramas, but you also work with artists, which is mm-hmm. how we've worked together. And maybe you can talk a little bit about the process differences. Yeah, I think I think one interesting thing is that you probably experiment more working with artists, and then you can use some of those things that you've learned on more mainstream shows, mm-hmm. where there might be a scene—I don't know—a scene that comes in that, that requires something just a bit different. Mm-hmm. So certainly. Working with the work I've done with you has nourished my other work, which mm-hmm. has been interesting. Um, I think the overall broad process is kind of that I would my approach would be the same. It would be like just working out what the hell's in your head, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then you know trying to yeah. trying to find how we achieve that. Yeah. What I love about not working on TV <laughs> is that TV particularly is re- very dialogue heavy. So mm-hmm. it's you know you're you're kind of doing faces a lot, mm-hmm. lighting faces, which is great, um, but it's nice to to tell thing, tell stories visually, or not not necessarily stories so much, but um, ideas or or tone, mm. and I think that's the main thing actually. It's tone, like the evocation, mm-hmm. like evocation is what what we love about photography mm. and cinematography. But those moments for evocation come less frequently than you would want, I suppose, mm-hmm. when you're working on it might be a dialogue heavy script or a plot based script, um, and if, working with artists. There's much more of that there. I am seeing a massive smile on my face <laughs> as I had a flashback to us in the cellars in Switzerland. <laughs> Pretty much pitch black. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
smelling of cheese. Yeah, in the most fabulous outfits. In fact, I think that's the only time I've ever seen you upset, is the outfit we had to wear. What, the hairnet? The hairnet, the coat, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so um, you talked about a little bit when you talked about coaxing out ideas, but I'm wondering where do you find inspiration to kind of incorporate kind of thoughts and ideas into what you do on an everyday? You know, listening to other creative people talk, I find that very inspiring in itself because you have to keep kind of reminding yourself of of why do anyway the the best way to approach being creative i'd say films older films eclectic films just it's really really important to watch very broadly and don't don't just think you know what is on at my local odeon and keep up with the oscars it's just a tiny fraction of what's Mm -hmm. out there and if that's all you watch then you know i think it's a shame actually just for yourself but um yeah, I think keeping it open is okay. important. So what advice would you give to someone wanting to be a cinematographer? Um, I'd say watch loads of films. <laughs> <laughs> um, watch loads of films or read loads of books. Become, you know, I'd say just nurture your existence and get passionate about... Find where your passion is, you know, just keep mm-hmm. exploring your passion. And maybe that is um, Hollywood cinema or whatever, but just keep exploring that passion. Um, and just shoot as much as you can. And it's really hard when when I've got a few kind of mentees and trainees and things that I work with and they're dying to shoot their first thing and it's really hard to get that first thing. So somehow you need to meet people, like a director, who is also interested in shooting their first thing Mm -hmm. and kick it off however you can and just start making work because you need to build up a body of work which is also building up a body of experience and then, you know... Gradually, your 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 understanding and your experience will improve, and you need to nurture the relationships that you're forming as well. So you need to keep trying to meet directors because mm-hmm. you can't. You've got nothing otherwise. You know you're you're on your own with the camera. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's about relationships and and experience. And also, I would recommend I would recommend not just going to film school. I'd recommend working in the industry and seeing how other people do it. Mm. It's also a massive commitment. It's not something you do on a whim because it takes years to get to that point. Yeah. It's kind of a marathon, not a sprint. You need to work out how to sort of keep going the long distance. So you need to make your your plan, which is why sometimes working in the industry can be helpful alongside building your career Mm -hmm. so that you can finance your career. But you also need to make sure you're not working all the time because if you're working all the time, you're not shooting anything. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's finding that, that balance there. What's coming up for you? I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, I've got some post-production on some jobs that I've just finished. Yeah. I've not long finished shooting something. Um, I've got some meetings with some artists, filmmakers, actually, which will be great if yeah. that comes off. Um, and then I'm just hoping that a great script will land on my desk and I can get excited about it. Cool. So um, we're coming to the end. So um, something I am going to ask everyone Mm -hmm. is um, if you can think about or tell me about a career or a job within the creative industries Mm -hmm. that you would like to know more about so that I can set about trying to find someone to bring on to greater than 11%. And secondly, someone that you would, or that you admire or that you really want to hear from Mm. uh, on the podcast. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, there's a career that I'd, that I'm very interested in, but I don't feel like I don't really understand it, mm-hmm. which is being a colorist. Mm-hmm. So the colorist sits at this desk and it's like this like Starship Enterprise, like thousands of buttons and they're like twiddling them all the time. And 
I just kind of want to know how that happens, how they do it and how they got there mm -hmm. and what their creative relationship is with um, with the directors and DOPs that mm -hmm. they work with. So they come in at the end, don't they, after the edit? Yeah. And they basically colour the film, yeah. create tone and things like that, or correct shots sometimes if need be. Exactly, and, yeah. yeah. And they have a huge, they can have a huge impact. So is there someone else in the industry that you would love to hear from on the podcast? I would love to hear from director Penny Woolcock because I have worked with her and she's amazing. And I've never met anyone quite like her before. And I just think everyone should hear Penny Wilcock talk about her life and her adventures. Okay, great. Anna, it's been such a delight to have you on Greater Than 11%. Thank you. Um, I love working with you. I love talking with you. And I also love um, creatively working through ideas with you. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. <laughs>